0: Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to join now in taking your copy of God's Word and turning with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 5 through 11. So as we have been in the book of Nehemiah now for our fall sermon series, we have been really focusing in the past couple weeks on chapter 1. The introduction to who Nehemiah is. And then last Sunday, we looked at Nehemiah's posture of prayer. Now by posture, we don't mean do we stand, do we sit, do we kneel, eyes closed, eyes open, hands up, down, clenched. What we're talking about with posture is is, is how Nehemiah prayed, the emphasis on prayer. And what we see with him, as we know in the book of Nehemiah, is that he was a man of action. And often we see with people who are of action, they have to go and they have to do. When there's a a problem, there's there's a situation, then their first inclination is to go out and do it, take care of it. But Nehemiah, who's very much a man of action, his posture of prayer leads him to his first action always being praying. Nehemiah prayed first, most, and often. It wasn't grabbing a shovel, it wasn't grabbing an axe. It was going to his prayer closet and going before the Lord and seeking the Lord's wisdom and guidance. So we find that posture of prayer for us. We often do before we pray. We find sometimes our actions, our prayers come from action. We're really, our, our, our actions should be coming from prayers. Did I say that right? I think, if not, I think you know what I mean. That's our posture of Prayer. The other posture we find with Nehemiah is that he persisted in prayer. He didn't hear about the destroyed wall in Jerusalem and go, Oh no, that's so bad. God, do something about it. What, what time's the football game on? Let me go focus on that. And Nehemiah focused on prayer. He persisted in prayer. By the dates given to us in this book, he consistently prayed three to five months. And again, not a prayer here and day, here and there. But in every day he came, he sought the Lord in prayer and sought the Lord in prayer about this issue of the walls surrounding Jerusalem. That's his posture of prayer, which leads us this morning to the meat of his prayer. How did Nehemiah pray? And there's a lesson for us here in how Nehemiah prayed. So we'll look at that in verses five through 11. So let me pray for us again as we come before God's word. So his blessings and guidance on this time together. So let's pray. Father, we do need your blessing and your guidance in this time. Not unto us, O Lord. If we were to come to this with our own eyes and our own understanding, we would come away with nothing, because we can be so clouded with sinfulness, with ego, with impatience. So we need your grace through your spirit to hear your word, to hear it rightly, to understand it rightly, so it may lead to a life's of faith that are growing in the grace of knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fellow, be at work in that way through me as your messenger. Be at work in that way this morning in this congregation as your people who need to feed upon the bread of this truth. And may we all be blessed because we have met with you and fed upon you. We praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, and we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. And Nehemiah said, or it means Nehemiah prayed, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your, and your eyes open. To to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I think it's safe to say for most families that we can gripe and moan about each other. We can have issues with each other we can gripe and moan about each other. But God help the person outside our family who has the same complaints, right? They don't have that privilege. They don't get to say well, what's wrong with our family. Only we as a family get to say that, right? So that's how we're going to approach when i get ready to say. We are a family. We are Bethel ARP. And we're a part of the ARP denomination. So with the love of the family, I'm going to say this that we as ARPs can be a pretty strange group of people. Like, Baptists can't say that about us. We'll fight them. And the Episcopals, we'll fight them too. I say it jokingly. But we are. We, we can be a strange group of people about some things. Now I'm saying this being 20 plus years of being in the Presbyterian clan, uh, 15 years now of being in the ARP, well, I say we can be strange, and I say we're really kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's true when it comes to liturgy. We have a strange view of liturgy. And here's what I mean. It seems as, as ARPs, we are decidedly and proudly non-liturgically liturgical. Does that make sense? That we are non-liturgically liturgical. Let me explain what I mean by this. We like liturgy, and by liturgy I mean structure. We like structure, but we only like it to a point. It only goes so far for us. Now, liturgy and structure, it is built into the DNA of every Christian. I think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.10, where he says, But all things should be done decently and in order. That's liturgy. That's structure. Paul sounds like an ARP there, doesn't he? We like to do all things decently and in order. And we thrive. We thrive when things are done decently and in order. For example, we had our session meeting this morning. And I, and I trust the elders will agree we did our, our, our business decently and in order. We had a docket. We went through. We, we had proper motions. An elder made a motion, and then it was seconded. And we'd have discussion, and then it was approved. So built into our DNA is, is, is the need for liturgy and structure. We're not built for chaos. We even see this in the creation story. God took chaos and brought structure out of it. So it's built into our DNA. It's also built into our DNA as Reformed Presbyterians. We we have structure, we have, we have government, we have our Westminster standards. We have our confession of faith, we have our larger catechism, we have our shorter catechism. We we even have a directory of public worship, which gives guidance and outline for how our worship service should be structured. It's a liturgical guide of sorts. And we adhere to that. We are, in a sense, a liturgical church. When you come to worship every week, you get a bulletin, and this bulletin never changes. It begins with the prelude, and we have greetings and announcements, call to worship, psalm or hymn of praise, prayer of adoration, confession, word of pardon, so on and so forth.
1: We only make minor
0: changes for communion Sundays and, and other special holidays. So the ARPs we are liturgical and worship, but that's where it tends to end for us. We don't go as far as our brothers and sisters and churches like the Episcopal Church do, and their use of a prayer book. In their use of the book of common prayer. You take an Episcopal book of common prayer and you see how the service is going to be laid out each week, even their prayers are written out. So we are, we are liturgical to a point, but we are non-liturgical when it comes to prayer. Our, our, want of, of, our want and need of structure and form seems to end at the front door of prayer. For many of us, when we, when we come to pray, we, we find we're almost like a, like a jazz combo. We know where we're going to start, but we have no idea where we're going, where we're going after that. And when we get to the end, we're just as surprise to everybody else at the end that we got to, right? So we can be kind of strange and that we are liturgically non-liturgical or non-liturgically liturgical, whichever way works best. But structure, even in prayer, isn't bad. Sometimes structure is needed. We already mentioned jazz combo. let's think about music. Let's think about structure in terms of music. Without structure, what would it sound like? Our last hymn is Sweet Hour of Prayer. We're going to sing it again this Sunday. And let's say we get to the hymn, and Boosie sits down, and she says, I'm going to play whatever notes whatever key and whatever tempo I'm going to want to play. And the choir, each of the choir members says, I'm going to sing whatever words I want to sing, whatever rhythm, whatever tempo, whatever meter I want to sing in. How's that going to sound to us? Is it going to sound like music? Our cat's dying. He needs structure for every music. Am I right, Lucy? Make sure I speak out of turn here. You want to write a letter? A thank you note? Do you just take words and make up meanings for them and just throw them in whatever order on there and expect somebody else to understand it? Structure isn't always bad. It gives us boundaries. It gives us directions. It can help us see where we need to be going. So structure can be good for our prayers and for our prayer life. We find structured prayers in Scripture. We pray a structured prayer together every Sunday. When I tell you, let us pray the Lord's Prayer, you know what we're going to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. And remember, this is the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, okay, I will teach you how to pray. And he gives them, there's a form, there's a structure, there's a flow to it. It begins with God and works its way downward. We go to Jesus' high priestly prayer. There's a form, there's a structure, there's a flow to it. We go to the Psalms. There's a flow, there's a form, there's a structure to those prayers. We can find other examples of prayers in Scripture that have been given to us. And in these prayers, there are structure. There's liturgy, there's form to them. these prayers, we said last week, are not given just as filler. They're given for us for our good and for us to for, for our use in praying. So structure can be good for our prayers. Structure may be needed for our prayers. It can be helpful for us. Now, I also believe we don't always need liturgy for our prayers. Sometimes our tears are our best prayers. Sometimes all we can do is sigh. Sometimes all we can do is utter God's name. Those are prayers. They're led by the Spirit. They're fed by the Spirit. They're guided by the Spirit. So I don't believe we have to be bound to structure in every prayer that we have to take out a worksheet and go, okay, I'm going to pray to God let me make sure I get this form and this form of instruction, A, B, C, D, and move on. But I also don't believe we have to eschew structure in prayer and just wink it. Our praying could be improved by imposing some liturgical discipline. And we see that in our prayer this morning with Nehemiah. There's a structure to this prayer. And so as we, we look at chapter 1, we believe this is a general representation of how Nehemiah prayed at between the months of Kislev and, and Nisan. Nice As we said, that would have been about three to five months in our time. Now, we don't believe that this prayer that we just read was what Nehemiah prayed word for word every day. Rather, it's a general representation of what he prayed. The emphasis is that he prayed this prayer every day, and he prayed it with structure. It's like when we come to chapter 1 and we read Nehemiah's prayer, it's like we have gone into Nehemiah's prayer closet with them and we are hearing him pray and we are hearing, there's a structure to this. This isn't free form. This isn't here, then jumping over here and then coming back over here and then we don't know how that fits in, but then somehow we end up coming to amen with it. Nehemiah prayed with structure because he knew in order for him to make sure he prayed for certain things, he needed a structure. He needed those guidelines and those boundaries. So he structured his prayer. And so his structure begins and it ends, it's a bookend, that it begins and ends with the adoration of God. Look again at verse 5. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Like other prayers we find in scripture, Nehemiah begins by adoring God. What if we just pray in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a prayer of adoration and that's what Nehemiah was doing. He begins and he ends this way. Now why? Why do we pray this way? Because God's an egomaniac and the only way we're going to get him to listen to us is if we butter him up? No. God doesn't need us to butter him up. Is for our good. When we pray in this way, it helps put everything into perspective. Nehemiah has just heard very bad news. The city of his ancestors is, is, is in destruction. The wall has been torn down. It moves him so much that he, he weeps and he he fasts and he's moved to pray. This, this has shook him to his core. And Nehemiah's prayer is every day, God, why would you allow this to happen? What's wrong with you? You know we need this wall. You know they need this wall. What's wrong with you? Now, Nehemiah's prayer every day helped put things in proper perspective. Oh, Lord God, you are worthy of adoration. He is reminding himself that it's God he's praying to. This is the Lord, the creator, the maker and keeper of the covenant. This isn't a casual conversation with a friend. Nehemiah hasn't gone down to the corner pub and sitting there with an old friend and and, and talking over drinks. Nehemiah has come before God in prayer. So he begins with a focus on God to help put everything into perspective. Because When you start with the adoration of God, everything takes on its proper dimensions. So for Nehemiah, it's the proper dimension of what's a torn down wall compared to the majesty of God? What's a torn down wall compared to what God can do? What are these problems compared to who God is and what he can do? So by beginning his prayer with adoration, Nehemiah, it it helps put everything else into focus for Nehemiah. Because here is God, and here is everything else. And I think you and I will find that when we pray this way, it would be very helpful. Instead of, you know, always running to God and just kind of lay out what we need and then kind of running away, when we come to God and we begin with adoration, it helps put everything into focus. Do you remember when you had to take a camera and it had a lens on it? Remember the good old days of working with a lens? And what you had to do? You had to get your subject in the frame, you had to work with the lens to put it into focus, right? Turn it this way, turn it this way, and now I've seen Carrie work that camera before. That kind of camera before. You have to work with the lens to put everything into focus. And once you get into focus it's all good to go. And that's what our prayer does when we begin with adoration of God. Everything comes into focus. This new generation with their digital phones don't understand the, the problem trying to get everything in focus, but we we remember that. But when our prayers begin with adoration of God then everything else comes into focus. So when we could pray like Nehemiah, oh Lord God of heaven, you are the great and awesome God because you're the one who keeps covenant and you keep steadfast love with those who, who love you and keep your commandments, then we find that what we have come to him to pray about and for now has, comes more into focus. We are God-centered instead a man-centered, problem-centered, situation-centered. We are God-centered. And everything else is put into its right perspective. When we pray in this way, we find that problem issue which seems so big and looming, now starts to look different in the light of who God is. When we bring our, our, our grief, our sorrow, our burdens that's weighing on us, we, we, we bring them into the light of who God is and how much He, lo- he loves us and, and what He has done for us, it, it seems to become more bearable. That things may be falling apart all around me, but God remains the same. Everything is put in its proper focus. And Nehemiah continues to do that when he talks about being, as God as being the God of heaven. Again, we see this in how we pray and how Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. So not only is is our Father uh, the transcendent creator, what's just as awesome worthy of of adoration is that the transcendent creator is our Father. Derek Kidner says it this way, the title reflects the character of God, not only for its encouraging aspect of loyalty and love, but for the majesty which puts man, whether friend or enemy, in his place. And so what this prayer does is, is it shows us It shows us Nehemiah's adoration of God, but it also shows us that his mind is saturated with God. And that's a good thing. We want our minds and hearts to be saturated with God. So that's why Nehemiah's prayer begins this way. His life is so God focused that when he begins to pray, all he knows how to do is begin with adoration and his prayer begins and ends that way. We see in verse 11, those who delight to fear your name. There's in Nehemiah this, this zeal to, to adore the name of God and bring him glory. He, he wants to start by telling God that, reminding himself of that, and then kind of those ending marching orders, he closes his prayer by reminding himself of the adoration of God. So he is, he is compelled, he's encouraged to go out and magnify the name of God. John Calvin said it this way, there is nothing better than to be subject to the majesty of God. Listening to a sermon recently from a friend uh, who preached at Clemson Presbyterian last week, Cal Caldwell. Cal's family there and recommended it to me. It's talking about how psychology has changed over the years. And when we think about being a better person now, it's all about being myself and I, what I can do to better myself. There is nothing better than to be subject to the majesty of me. We're a community, where society has continued to be more and more broken. This me-centeredness isn't really working, is it? We're told by God that God-centeredness always works. There's nothing better than to be subject to the Majesty of God. J.I. Packer said it this way. Nehemiah's walk with God was saturated with his praying and praying of the truest and purest kind, namely the sort of praying that is always seeking to clarify its own vision of who and what God is and to celebrate his reality in constant adoration and to rethink in his presence such needs and requests as one is bringing to him so that that the stating of them becomes a specifying of hallowed be thy name, thy will be done for for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It's like Nehemiah, our walk with God is meant to be saturated with praying. That we pray first, most and often, and we persist in prayer, but we always pray with an eye on God. Not on just what he will do for us, but what, uh, on who he is. That we adore him, even in our prayers. The next element we find in Nehemiah's prayer is confession of sin, as we see in verses 6 through 7. Nehemiah knows the history. He knows why Jerusalem is in the status in. It's because of the sins of the Israelites. They are unrepentant of their sins. It's caused the judgment of God that's resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah understands that Jerusalem is to be restored. It would need to be restored upon the basis of a confession of these sins. So Nehemiah takes it upon himself to go into his prayer closet and day after day, he, and he prays, he confesses, he's specific about his sins. He says, we have not obeyed the commands, we have not obeyed the decrees, we have not obeyed the laws that you gave your servant Moses. He understands that sin equals discipline and he has seen the result of it. But Nehemiah also understands grace. He understands that when you seek forgiveness, and there comes with it repentance and blessing. So Nehemiah not only confesses, but he seeks repentance for his people. But he doesn't just point his finger at his people. He doesn't just say, Well, all those bad people there, they're the ones responsible for the breakdown of our society. It's them. No, he includes himself and his family in this confession. Now remember, Jeremiah is too young to have been responsible for this. He was born in captivity. He was raised in captivity. But he confesses his sin. He confesses the sin of his father's generation. Who would have been responsible? But he points the finger at himself as well. It's easy for us to look around the world that we don't like and go, It's their fault. They're the ones who voted this way. They're the ones who wanted these people in. It's their fault. What's wrong with America? It's you. What's wrong with the world? It's you. Nehemiah says, It's me. Several years ago, the Times of London invited several authors to respond to the theme What's Wrong with the World? Several articles and essays were sent in, uh, each belaboring a point. And a Christian author, G.K. Chesterton, just wrote a letter and said, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. And that's the Christian attitude towards sin, isn't it? It's not everybody else is a sinner, but I'm a sinner. They that that penitent beggar who pounds his chest and says, and can't even stand to look at God and says, oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. While the righteous Pharisee stands there in all his pompousness and he prays the, hum- the, the penitent humble beggar stands over his side and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We can point to others. We know that old saying, when you point your finger, you've got three, three fingers and a thumb pointing back at you. Because how does Jesus teach us to pray? Lord, forgive us our debts. Forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. So when we come to God in prayer, we move from adoration to confession. We confess that we have not adored our God as we ought to. It's not everybody else's fault. It's me. I'm a sinner and I need the grace of Jesus Christ. The final element we find in his prayer is thanksgiving, as we see in verses 8 through 10. He talks about the context of the instructions that he gave his servant Moses. So Nehemiah isn't quoting a particular Old Testament passage here, but he's, he's summarizing the great covenant principle of Deuteronomy, expressed in chapters 28 and 30. So Nehemiah says to God, I am thankful for who you are and I'm thankful for your covenant promises to your people that when we sin, when we come back for forgiveness, uh, you hear us, you have blessings for us when we repent and we obey. So Nehemiah takes time to thank God. Now again, keep in mind the situation. He is wept, he is fasted, it's horrible news. And when we get horrible news, we say, thank you. Thank you for giving me a horrible news. Thank you for wrecking my car. But Nehemiah, when he gets bad news, goes and he thanks God. Thank you, God, for who you are. Thank you for what you have done and what you are doing and what you promised to do. Lord, thank you for you. Because I know everything that's underneath you. Is this a part of our prayer life? Do you take time just to simply thank God for being God? God. Do you thank him for what he has done, what he is doing, what he promises to do? Sometimes it's good for us just to pray in this way. God, I don't, I don't want anything from you. I just want to say thank you. Don't you love when people come up to you and say, thank you? They don't want anything, They're, they don't want anything from you. They're not implying anything. They just thank you. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. And so we're called to do the same. Because when we thank God this way, we're reminded of how good God is. Sometimes, sometimes we can forget that, can't we? When we make an effort to, to thank God in our prayers, we are making an effort to remember how good he is. Not just to focus on our problems, but on God's goodness. From this structure of prayer, that Nehemiah then goes on to ask God for his help in his time of going before the king. now we're good about asking God for something, aren't we? We need to be just as good for remembering who God is and adoring him to confess our sins and seek repentance and to be thankful for God and for his work and that's where the structure of prayer can be helpful, can it? you may have heard a structure before referred to as adoration, confession thanksgiving and supplication and that's what we see in Nehemiah adore God, confess your sins be thankful for God and then ask him for what you need but this structure doesn't stand on its own This structure stands upon the foundation of Jesus. Because think about what this structure calls us to do. To adore God. We can only adore God when we know Jesus Christ in faith. We can only adore who God is when we have been broken by the Spirit of God and compelled to come before Jesus Christ and confess Him as Lord and Savior. We can only adore when we know and love and follow Jesus. And we can only confess our sins when it's Jesus through his spirit who has broken our hearts like we see it in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we can only confess this way when we know sin this way in the light and the glory of grace of Jesus Christ. And we can only be thankful for God when we know Jesus. It's only through Jesus that we can know the Father. Father. It's only through Jesus that we can be thankful for the Father, for the Son, and for the Holy Spirit. Our our prayers are always to have this foundation of Jesus Christ. That's why we end in His name. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the foundational. We are not only coming to God through Jesus, we're coming to Him in Jesus, through faith in Jesus. That's why all of our prayers find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Because that structure is built upon Jesus. And it helps us focus as we ought to in our prayers. It's the spirit of Christ who helps us pray as we ought to. So do we want to pray like Nehemiah? Do we want to be first, and most, and often? Do we want to persist? Do we want to have a prayer that is so saturated with God as we find it here that it begins with Christ? It begins by being in Christ and coming to God through Christ in prayer so that we can adore, we can confess, confess, and we can be thankful. So we come to God through Jesus, and we use these structures of prayers so we can best express ourselves in prayer to our God in heaven. That's what we learned from Nehemiah. So let's put that into practice, in our faith, and in our lives.